This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. Welcome to Changemaker EDU, a podcast that inspires powerful individual and collective transformation by sharing leadership, personal development, and education change-making ideas and stories to ignite people like you to create the change deep within your soul, embody your calling, and bring your dreams to life. I'm your host, David K. Richards, and I share wisdom from my 25 plus years as an education innovator, school founder and CEO, mindset teacher and leadership coach, but also interviewing other diverse paradigm shifters. Join me in our grassroots movement to create lasting impact, one education change maker at a time. All right, everyone, as always, the introduction is going to be me asking Mia Howard, who we just had a great conversation with, about what she thinks are the key takeaways from our conversation today. What do you think, Mia? First takeaway is that schools that are best positioned to lead us into the future are schools that embrace an expanded definition of student success, focus on equity in the educator and student experience, and innovate by combining proven practice with new approaches. And the second takeaway is that these approaches are the key to overcoming the hardships schools are currently navigating, whether that's teacher shortages or the ESSER funding cliff. It's going to be schools that are innovating at the intersection of those three things that will set themselves apart. And then the last thing is that I'm optimistic about the future of K-12 because of the bright spots that we're seeing in the new schools venture fund portfolio and in schools around the country, serving students furthest from opportunity, but creating the next generation of schools that are human-centered. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's such a great conversation. It was great to have Mia who has like a view of schools across the country. And of course, with the portfolio and the cohort that she has, New Schools Venture Fund, I could ask her like, do you know a high school that's doing this? Or do you know a school that's four day, you know, four day work week? And she had really powerful examples. And I feel like the innovation that she shared and the different ways that you can innovate around, like she said, talent or pathways to success or expanded definitions uh, of students, uh, expanded definition of success. And we also really focus on the human-centered nature of schooling and how we need to really think about the importance of social emotional learning and all those amazing things that I know that the listeners care about. And finally, we did close, like she said, with the optimism that this is a really powerful moment for K through 12, for families, for educators, for people like you that are listening that are education change makers that we're kind of coming out of the like the really dark phase and we're in this much brighter phase of creating change. And hopefully whatever you're dreaming about, Mia will spark some interest. I know I was pumped up. I was like, yes, let's build this high school. I'm ready. <laughs> Thanks yeah. so much, Mia. Thank you.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Changemaker EDU. Super excited to be here today with Mia Howard. How are you doing, Mia? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk to you. So I always like to start with reading a little bit from the guest bio. So I'm going to read a little bit from Mia's bio and then ask her to add any anything she might like to add. So Mia Howard is managing partner at New Schools Venture Fund. In her role, she leads the innovative schools investment area, which supports educators with bold new visions for schools that embrace an expanded definition of success, equity, and innovation. Full disclosure, Growth Public Schools has, I think you're actually our biggest supporter. So we appreciate you and we're excited about the work you're doing. I would love to hear anything else you'd like to add about, you know, how you ended up at New Schools Venture Fund and your background in general. Yeah. So um, again, great to be here today. I came to my work at New Schools Venture Fund after spending some time as a charter school operator in Nashville and then a place-based education funder in St. Louis, which is where I now live. Mm. And those experiences were really formative in helping me develop a pretty strong perspective on what it takes to build and sustain equitable learning environments and reimagine learning for young people. Um, But it also felt like as educators, when I was in in school-based roles, we were being asked to spend time um, in distracting conversations and frankly, quite, quite frankly, the wrong ones. Um, and so what brought me to new schools was the opportunity to be in a community and helping to build a community committed to keeping the focus on equitable and expanded outcomes for students, the types of innovative models that families desire to create multi-generational impact and designing with, not for community. Um, and now I get to work with over 100 schools around the country, where from 2015 to 2023, we've been, been able to put more than $90 million to work um, in charter and district schools that are all committed to what you mentioned, that expanded definition of student success, equity, um, and new approaches that are really going to meet the needs of the next generation. Yeah, when you say there were conversations that were distracting and the wrong conversations, what are the wrong, what were the wrong conversations and what do you think are the right conversations? So governance absolutely matters, but the quality of the governance and how you're partnering with community matters a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought we were getting just in the cotton this charter versus district binary. Right. Um, whereas what I've been so privileged to see up close now that I work nationally. And again, across district and charter contexts, is that innovation is happening everywhere, yes. um, and it's been it's been it's been helpful for me to see what are the common threads around what it takes to build resilient models, responsive models, where you're sharing power with community, and that can happen again regardless of whether or not it's a district or a charter school. And that's been really important in my own learning because my start in education was actually in charter schools. Um, and so I've just been excited to now work in a space where the focus is on students. Yeah. And then what do you mean when you say expanded definition of success? Yes. So, you know, and you probably remember this from your time uh, leading schools as well, but yeah. so long we were kind of under this mandate of no child left behind. Mm-hmm. And while that was meant to address really important inequities, ultimately we can look back at that chapter and say that we were doing it in a really limited way by only thinking about the academic component of a student's development. And our focus on an expanded definition of student success um, is really saying we need to look at cognitive development, we need to look at academics, we need to look at social emotional learning, and we need to look at the context in which all of those things are happening. So the culture and climate of schools matters just as much in terms of being able to advance really strong academic outcomes and ultimately the life outcomes that are going to put students on a good footing to be able to have the career um, and pathways of their choice in the future. 
Yeah. You know, you're reminding me when you talked about the different, like seeing the charters and districts and kind of just saying, you know, there might be some, I think you said there's like similarities or you're seeing just great innovation across regardless of whether your district. And I had mentioned to you before we hit record that I've been talking with micro school leaders and homeschoolers and, you know, whatever's out there to give people just innovative options. But it reminds me when I went to, when I was a principal my first or second year in San Jose, California, and they had a big meeting at the Santa Clara County Office of Education. And they actually took the top five district schools and the top five charter schools, the top five yeah district and charter schools. And they talked about what were the similarities. And I always remember this. And I always tell people, I can't remember all of them, but I'm going to try. So it was strong leadership. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Great teachers that had autonomy and that you trusted and that really had, you know, the freedom to teach what they would not like be great. The freedom to be great. Right. Mm-hmm. It was strong culture and community and parent involvement. Mm-hmm. And the 10 best schools in this, you know, Santa Clara County is the heart of Silicon Valley. So this, this is a huge county. And those were the, those were the key areas that the best 10 schools they shared across. And when we, they had a panel and when they interviewed people, it was like, Oh, I don't even know what, you know, what your governance or your structure is of your school. I just know that you understand what it means to create a great school and to create great learning opportunities for your kids. Like the kid, the people sitting up on the panel, I'm like, I don't know who's who. And that really stuck with me. Cause like you said, we get so distracted by, you know, is this, this school or that school or who's this and who's funding it or who's doing it and what are, what's actually, so what are you seeing across the space in terms of strong connections with innovative models and like what are some of those similarities or things that you think make your your the schools that you oversee or that you support that look the best yeah i mean a lot of it is aligned to what you were sharing so in addition to things like strong leadership and you know dedicated teachers um i would add alignment so it right starts with um a really compelling but relevant and community anchored graduate profiles. Everyone's working towards the same goal. Um, you, you can use, then use that as a filtering function for hiring. So going back to having great teachers, it also means having the ability to choose who you work with. That's a really important lever. And so making sure that principals have the ability to um, hire and retain their best talent. Um, I would also say uh, coalition building is key. So you mentioned fam- the role of families and mm-hmm. we see the best schools, treating families as partners in decision-making and planning um, be, by being open and transparent, not just about student and academic performance for their, for their student, but organizational performance as well. Um, and I would love, the last thing I would say um, is again, this focus on an expanded definition of student success. So really right. be clear that the goal is multi-prong and academics is uh, one of the of the important parts of that, but that it has to happen alongside a strong culture and climate, an organizational culture that has to happen alongside the social emotional learning development for um, for students as well. Yeah, and I I've always loved New Schools Venture Fund. I'm not just here to plug; like I really mean that. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because when I was first applying, I think we were like the second cohort back in 2016, 17, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. We, I took to the board, like a report you guys had put together to our board. And it was like, maybe the second or third board meeting. And I said, I don't know how to explain to you what I want to do, but this great funding partner that we have has put it into this really fancy report with like great graphs and colors. And so I'm going to share this with you. And I don't know, at that point, you know, it was pretty early on, but we had done enough really talking about the mission and the values. And 
the board members were like, oh, this is great. Like, this literally seems like you wrote it. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> and because I really believe in what you what you said around this expanded definition of student success. But one of the things I was help, trying to help explain, and I would love to hear your take on this, is that I feel like in the early days of charter schools or, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we had this like high expectations, no excuses model. And we did that for a reason. And so how, how do you think we need to navigate this like new definition of success, like how do we know what's the expression throughout the baby with the bath, the bath water, whatever, like, do we, we don't want to just say, oh, we don't need kids to, to have high, you know, have good results and to be learning and especially disenfranchised communities. But at the same time, we need to kind of reimagine how we're doing the, the schools that we thought were, were great for kids, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, I also started a charter school in that era where the predominant model for students furthest from opportunity was called No Excuses. Yeah. And it was a rallying cry for adults. Um, but I don't think we had enough shared collaboration and communication and vision as a sector about what it actually means to, to do that in practice, such that in um, when it's happening under the umbre umbrella of the No Child Left Behind era, like I mentioned, it kind of led to this right. really myopic focus on academics only. Right. We've got every cost, at any cost, getting these, getting these scores. And um, I went through my own evolution as a school leader, where I came in very data-driven, very um, urgently wanting to improve outcomes for the community that I was serving. But I learned by doing that you had to do it in a way that was human-centered. And so I would love for us to have a new rallying cry that's about human-centered education, because another false dichotomy that was happening in that prior chapter, and for schools that are still trapped in that place, you know, they're probably still there now, given the fact that post-pandemic, uh, the responsibilities of schools have only heightened. It feels even more urgent in so many ways to get things right. Um, but when we talk about uh, students versus teachers, right? Like students first can create this um, sentiment that teachers don't matter. Teachers matter inc are incredibly important. Their health, their satisfaction, their morale, their, uh, yeah. their, their ability to be poured in, into and developed matters just as much. And so what we're seeing is this shift um, under this expanded definition of student success to say, again, academics is key and you don't, that doesn't have to be positioned as something that when you focus on SEL or culture climate is a distraction. Actually, those are levers for academic growth. But even if they weren't, those are things that are right to do anyway. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and we're seeing in our portfolio, we now have seven years, eight years of this data, like you mentioned, going back to 2015, mm -hmm. showing that when schools focus on social emotional learning and development, and they focus on a strong culture and climate, that you actually see correlations with better academic results. That's and the learning science, even about what um, are the best conditions for students to learn, is is really clear about that. Um, and so it's been exciting for us to see that, especially post pandemic, where we're also seeing that schools that had strong SEL um, prior to the pandemic, yeah. in terms of student perceptions of themselves and their learning environment, those schools were actually showing that the development of SEL served as a protective factor against yes. COVID era learning loss. Um, and so now more than ever, we really want to get that message out there that it has to be positioned as a both and, um, and we can do both. It's not zero sum, like taking away time from academics to do SEL. That's not what we're seeing in our schools. We're seeing schools are threading SEL in core parts of the day where it's focused on, but also bringing it into the core learning um, and tier one academic learning environment. There's a way to 
choose curriculum that's culturally relevant, that is helping students understand themselves and their identities alongside the core content. There are ways in which, you know, the ways that project-based learning models have a huge focus on collaboration and communication, right? And so yeah. we're able to build toward SEL development through academic content. Yeah, and I'm really glad to hear that you shared, you know, the schools that were doing, that are, were already strong in doing social emotional learning before the pandemic were able to transition and have, you know, I think you said like less learning loss, but that was what happened to us at Growth Public Schools. You know, we had, we were able to pivot really quickly because we have one-to-one computers, like all that good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, but what I noticed, because I actually was kind of like transitioning out of the school at that point, I was, I was in my succession plan during the time. And what I noticed was that that anchor of social emotional learning for our teachers, because we use the Valor Circle model. So the teachers do it every week and the students do it every week. And I would go to the, you know, during the whole pandemic, even after I left the school, I would still go to the circles on Zoom because I needed them, right? And I think that that was, it's so really cool to see that. I feel like that gives even more of an argument for the need for social emotional learning. And to your point, it doesn't have to be an either or. Like before it was kind of like, oh, that's, you know, one of those squishy schools that just like everyone's sitting in a circle and loving each other. And the kids, you know, the kids that need to really hit the high expectations are not, you know, we're doing them a disservice. Like we're one of my friends would always say, we're loving them dumb, you know, like we're not actually giving them high expectations. So I feel like you're saying it's both, right? Yeah. And it's been interesting to see because, you know, five years ago, we would see schools when they were sharing their model designs with us and the school founders were sharing them in the early days, they would talk about those elements as innovations in their model. But now they're coming to us and talking about it as core and proven practice right. that they must include in their model. And for some communities, it's still going to be new. You know, SEL and the approach that you mentioned at Valor, where they do it through a circle practice for students and adults to deepen relationships, deepen self, you know, self-awareness, um, and to uh, navigate conflict is a powerful model. Uh, but we're seeing more and more schools come to us and say that that's part of what they do not because it's innovative, but because it's proven. Right, right. It's yeah. Okay, that's cool. It's becoming more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Now, you you mentioned the term human centered. Tell me, you said let's have our new rallying cry be something about human centered. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. So, what's um, powerful, and I think why I've stayed in schools as long as I have, or in the ecosystem of K twelve education, yeah, um, is because of the social uh, environment of being in school. I was a gifted and talented kid. I grew up, you know, in um, really economically, socioeconomically and racially diverse schools. I grew up in schools where um, attention was really paid to academics. We were kind of left on our own for the social emotional learning. But but, uh, I was an extrovert when I was a child. And so took every opportunity to collaborate and talk. And I was often getting told told to be quiet because I always wanted to make everything social. Um, But I think that's what's that's, I think that's what brought me to education. It was because you know so many so many of my formative social experiences, especially because I'm an only child, mm. were in schools, and right. so I just think there's so much power. And you think about how much time people commit of their lives to work and or to school. Um, it has to be a place where people's identities are affirmed, where they feel seen, known, and valued, um, and human centered approaches. Um, are, I think, a path forward to do that. And so, you know, again, moving away from this uh, paradigm where the end result is a test score, mm-hmm. but, to, but to a paradigm where the end result is a human who is competent and prepared to navigate the world, 
We feel that they've built social relationships and built social capital in their environment. We feel like they um, better understand themselves and the world around them through their interactions at school is what we want to create. And so it's been great to see so many schools um, commit to that pre-pandemic, but then recommit to that in new and expanded ways, to your point around the ways in which now we're bringing educators into that tent and saying school should be back for adults too. Um, and that's what's been great to see over the last three years. Yeah. And as you were talking, I sometimes I'll talk about how like every time I go to a school website, it says we're cultivating lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is that actually happening? And everyone says they're doing it. So like, <laughs> is it so as you said that, I was like, oh, what a beautiful vision, like human-centered. And you know, instead of a test score, it's like, are the humans going to be, you know, successful in life and the world and jobs and all that school, all that wonderful thing. And I feel like that's what every school says. So I'm just curious what, I'm such a cynic sometimes, but I'm yeah. curious what you're seeing and, you know, because you have all these great schools in your portfolio. And I can say from going to your communities of practice and doing those things that it's like, wow, they really have found the best across yeah. the country. It's amazing, amazing people, including yourself. Like when I read your bio, I was like, oh, no wonder she works there because they always know how to find amazing people. <laughs> but yeah, tell us a little bit about like, maybe just a couple examples of schools that you feel like are doing this really well that are able to hold all these things. And when the kids finish, you know, they're like, I did have, I did talk to Scott Best from Purdue Polytechnic, who I know is also in your, in your portfolio. And he said his kids, when they graduate, they talk about like the fact they learned how to fail as one of his examples. And I was like, that's a great example of how you're doing school differently and you're creating different outcomes for your kids. But yeah, do you have other examples or just stories you could share? Yeah, I do. Um, so one school that's coming to mind is actually right here in St. Louis. It's Atlas Public Schools. They are a K-5 system that launched in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Wow. And when you think about everything that goes into creating a single site charter school, it really, really relies on human connection. It being, relies on being able to get out there, knock on yeah. doors, establish a brand presence. Um, and all of that, they had to redesign in the pandemic. They couldn't, yep. they couldn't. Right. Um, and it actually created a space for um, them to think differently about human connection during the pandemic. So they started, uh, they worked with 4.0 schools that gave them a, 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 a micro grant uh, to, mm-hmm. to try this approach, but they created um, at home learning kits. And they said, if you, you know, if, if our place based learning model mm-hmm. can't stand up right now, pre launch, this is all, again in their planning year, yeah. we still get the word out to families that this school exists. And so they thought about how do we create Zoom communities? Uh, for parents to come together around pre-kindergarten readiness. How do we package that where parents are getting a kit every month that ha- kind of helps them partner with their child differently in those critical months before school starts um, to do things like think about how to create social skills, how to create um, letter recognition and things like that. And so they pushed yeah. those out. And actually they reached way more families than they ever would have probably done had they just been doing knock- knocking on doors. They built right. up a a mail database of about 2,000 families that were getting these monthly kits. It was really, really powerful. And the feedback that they were able to get from parents was, we love this as a way to anchor units for learning. So now they actually send home a kit. Now that they're up and running, they're in year three right now. But now they send home a kit at the beginning of every unit. And parents can now work with their children in really powerful ways to help set them up for success with learning. Um, And it was a great way for the school to say, we want parents as partners. We're not able to get out in these. And it actually it deepens the partnership, right? You can think about the ways in which knocking on doors can be very transactional. You're just looking to get letters of intent to enroll. Yeah. But the innovation there actually caused them to have to deepen their relationship with parents um, to get the word out and to help 
prepare students for success in early elementary. That's really cool. And I think that's such a good like micro example of what kind of things you can do and be creative and try different things. And I also love that so much for the pandemic. I wish I had that when I with my kids. They were in third and fifth grade. But yeah, it's it's a great example. And let's talk about teachers a little bit. So what are some of the ways that you're seeing, um, you know, that we're all facing this recruiting and retention with teachers in the space. So what are some solutions you're seeing to solve these challenges? Yeah, so I think there's a number of schools in our portfolio that, again, are at the vanguard of trying to really position teaching and learning as a career you can do that's rewarding and lifelong. And um, in those schools, we're seeing a few trends for how they're approaching teaching and learning and the profession of teaching to make it attractive, um, to make it, uh, you know, rewarding and sustainable. And so one of those ways is unbundling the role of a teacher. Mm-hmm. which is really going against the side right now. If anything, most teachers will tell you and all the polling shows this, right? That like the amount of um, stress that's put on the teacher's role coming out of the pandemic is heightened. Oh yeah. They're meant to address student health, mental health needs. They're asked, being asked to address academic recovery while teaching grade level content. Like the mm-hmm. role is broadening, but we're seeing in the schools that are able to attract and retain best talent, and get strong academic results within a strong organizational culture, uh, they're unbundling the role of a teacher. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about how do you actually protect teacher time for things like lesson internalization, but that means that someone else might be doing the curriculum, like splitting between a lead teacher and an assistant teacher. Some teacher might be doing some of the grading while the lead teacher is actually focused on the data analysis that came out of the grading. Mm -hmm. Um, Focusing on... Uh, you know, cent- more centralized curriculum development such that teachers are not having to create curriculum and teach it simultaneously. And even things like uh, the little things that you get asked to do around the school day, you know, lunch duty, <laughs> uh, bus duty, like stripping those roles mm-hmm. away and finding support personnel that can really hold those aspects that are still important to the strong functioning of a school, yeah. but really being protective of what the teachers asked to do in their work, um, to prioritize student relationships, to prioritize academics. Those are the two key pieces. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing we're seeing is um, co-teaching models, particularly in elementary, mm-hmm. um, as a way to, to to operationalize what I just mentioned about that unbundling. So it does require some looking at your budget and thinking about how to creatively staff on the instructional side to see if you can afford the co-teaching model. Um, we're also seeing uh, time being allocated, you, you know, it was interesting earlier, you talked about autonomy mm-hmm. for teachers. And I would say, I don't know that autonomy in every area is helpful. I actually think giving teachers a lot of direction about how to best use time during the school day when it's not instructional time is essential for a sustainability, especially right. for early care teachers. Right, true. Yeah. Like, uh, instructional enabling systems that call for you know, uh, co-planning during the school day, how much time is allocated to that is also really important. Um, in early elementary, we're seeing a shift away from a t- the early elementary teacher that teaches math, science, reading, social right. studies, to departmentalizing in those early grades, again, with an eye towards narrowing what teachers are responsible for so they can get really deep into the content expertise of their content. Um, we're also seeing schools continuing to really keep a lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging front and center. They manage what they measure. So they're 
data collecting around the student, um, sorry, the staff experiences, looking yep. at any group differences that are appearing in staff experience to create different opportunities to resolve that. Um, and also making sure that across their hiring, development and retention and advancement work, that they're doing all of that with a DEI lens. And so that's some of the, some of the really promising practices that we're seeing happen in schools amid a really challenging time to be an educator. Yeah. But in schools, we're still seeing the majority of staff with favorable net promoter scores for their individual school. Um, you ask the question, do you see yourself still teaching or in the same school within the next three to five years? In those schools, we're still seeing those numbers be strong. And so we definitely think, there's something, we think that there's something worth paying attention to, especially because the, the narrative public, you know, in the press is doom and gloom on all of this, right? Right. It's teacher shortages, and, and but there are schools that buck the trend, and I want to make sure that people know what those schools are so that they can adopt a lot of those practices that are working at the hardest time. Yeah, I'm curious if there's an example, a school that's doing four days a week, because mm-hmm. I, I've been thinking about this, and one of the things that I'm now 47 years old, so now when I will read like surveys from different teachers, and including our school and other schools I consult with, and they're like so different than I was at 25. They're like, I don't work past 335. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that meant when I was a teacher. I was up till 10. But, you know, I'm like, gosh, I wish I could have been as evolved as they are. And I like saw that in several ones. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Wow. Okay. This is like normal now. And, you know, and then I think about when I've talked with teachers, they're like, well, my millennial friends, they don't use this language, but they're like, my friends actually just quit when they don't like their job or they switch or they work from home. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and they're really like, no, we have to be done at this time to go on our run. And like, they're really evolved in this way. And so I'm just curious if there's schools that are working on, because I feel like one a core problem that I'm curious about is mm-hmm. how do you solve this problem of like, teachers don't have that much flexibility. They've been in the building like seven to three or eight to four or whatever the schedule is. And so how do we solve for that problem? And I'm like, oh, we kind of ran the whole like four day a week thing. And um, I think it just didn't work with the instructional minutes, but I'm just curious if you have any schools are doing interesting things around that core problem of teachers have to be in the building a lot. And most people are not interested in doing that anymore. Yeah. So I'll talk about it in two different grain sizes of change because one speaks directly to the fact that the majority of schools are still five days a week, brick and mortar with low flexibility for teachers. Um, And a friend of mine who leads a school here in St. Louis, uh, Kairos Academy says, you know, his number one competitor for teacher roles isn't other schools, it's Uber. Right. Interesting. And people who want to work in a gig economy where they have a lot more flexibility. Exactly. And so what he has done while still week is um, work on the back end in terms of staffing model and instructional time and schedules to be able to offer teachers a flex day a week where they can either have a late start or, you know, work yes. from home. Like they're having to just look, manage, manage the expectation for what teachers and new career or even like legacy, you know, like veteran educators are saying yeah. they want to continue in the profession and just managing that on the back end. Um, but then you have schools mm-hmm. like Believe Schools, which is a charter management organization um, in Indianapolis, also soon to expand to St. Louis, that has operated as a high school with a four-day instructional week for the teacher. Right. On the eighth day, because they're an early college high school and because they have a lot of community partnerships that are meant to foster some of the SEL learning that you know we've talked about as being core in a lot of our schools. Um, so Friday is community day, basically, where 
they're either bringing community partners in to lead instruction yep. or everything's happening offsite and students are in the community um, doing place-based learning. And so in those models, we're seeing um, teachers really appreciate having that Friday to do, you know, team meetings, to do, um, and what you can do from home, right? <laughs> to, yeah. do, to do uh, planning, to... Right. Take care of doctors. Take care of yourself. To breathe. <laughs> yeah. yeah You're the dentist. Doctors, like, take care of your doctor's appointments. Take care of your life needs. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about that model in particular is that they're running circles around these uh, other schools in Indiana. I believe it. Meeting in the state. So 80% of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is what I'm seeing on a lot of the things I look on LinkedIn about the four-day work week just in, in across all industries is that they have like the highest productivity and the best results. And I'm like, yeah, because people just waste tons of time. I used to work in the corporate world. <laughs> so much time was wasted. And in a school, having that extra day, I literally, we had at the school I worked at, we had a really cool system. I think it's why I was able to not be as burnout. We would take a month off for intercession and we'd have partners come in and teach what we did professional development. So you could sleep in, you know, get in at nine, go till four. I didn't have to worry about the commute. I didn't have to get there at seven. You know, it was like, I wasn't in front of kids and with kids all day, every day. So mm-hmm. that, that was, so it's really like taught seven or like seven or eight months out of the year instead of nine or 10. And yeah. that, so that's a similar kind of model, but yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I love this idea of bringing in community partners too, because then you're able to have, it gives the student experience. You know, the students are so, because one of the issues is right. Like childcare or like, what do we do with our kids? We can't like high school kids can't be just wandering the streets every Friday, mm-hmm. but that way there's a place for the kids to be and the teachers get that flexibility. So that I'm really glad you have an example of that. Cause I wanted the listeners to hear that these types of things are possible. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about, are we going to say something else about that? No, no, it's okay. We can move on. Okay. I wanted to ask you about this idea of, I'm really curious it could just be high school or it could be other schools in terms of pathways for success around college and career. I'm really interested. I mentioned to you that we're, we're kind of thinking about opening a high school before we hit record. And I've been looking a lot at, you know, what are these, what are the options for kids when they graduate? If it's not a four-year college, if it's, you know, a trade, is it a tech job? Like what are the, what are the options? I'd be curious what, you know, what you're seeing in the space around creative ways of doing this in general for high school. And then also if there's just really cool K through 12 models that are doing interesting things around pathways to success post-graduation. Yes. Um, I love this. You asked this question. Uh, first for listeners, I just want to define what we mean when we say pathways. To oh success. yes, please. Um, since it was new terminology to me when I came to new schools. Um, and so uh, we talk about pathways to success as routes to opportunities, specifically approaches, models and strategies that support students to explore their passions and interests, develop post-secondary goals, and engage in high-quality working and learning experiences rather than operating in a career or college binary. It's mm, great for students um, and school leaders to reject that either-or framing and then develop solutions that actually prepare students for economic success and lifelong learning um, and success on both of those pathways. And so some of the ways that we're seeing schools um, approach this in really cool ways that I'm excited about. Yeah. Uh, model that you may have heard of is Brooklyn STEAM, which is based in New York. It's a partnership with New York City DOE Public Schools and uh, the Brooklyn uh, Naval Yard, where they are able to actually work on five or six different pathways where there's credentialing opportunities. And it actually splits the student's high school day and week. And so they spend about half of the day learning um, 
in the traditional, you know, core content, you know, your English coursework, your calculus coursework, et cetera. But then in the afternoons, you're going off site or in the mornings, if you're on the, that, that kind of schedule, you're going half the day and you're actually doing job embedded learning with employers who've made commitments to hire a percentage of these students out of high school um, and give them, you know, a potential to earn a living wage coming right out of high school. And so that's been a really powerful path. Um, and what I always get worried about when I hear about CTE is just that oftentimes students get tracked into those programs really early on. And then if they decide that they do want to pursue a two or four year college, they're, they haven't really been developing a transcript that enables them to make that transition. And so what I've appreciated about Brooklyn STEAM is that uh, it's, it's a model where students truly do have a choice and the majority of students are leaving college ready. The majority of students are actually choosing to still go to college right straight out of high school, which is an interesting outcome given their CTE focus, but students are prepared to do both, which I think is the key ingredient. Um, in Alabama, I'm really excited about the work we're seeing at Alabama Aerospace and Aviation High School. Um, readers, I'm sorry, listeners probably know Tuskegee University is down there um, with a storied history about the role of African-Americans in aviation in our country. Um, but today, the percentage of, of, of Black students that are able to pursue careers in aviation is really low. And when we talk about aviation, we're not just talking about pilots. We're talking about, you know, airplane manufacturing, technician, mm-hmm. you know, the whole gamut. Um, and so Ruben Mars founded that school and opened last year. So it's going into its second year of operation this fall to create a pipeline of Black uh, aviation professionals. And it's been really cool to see uh, they have um, hangars on site at their campus. So they, there's actually like you know, planes that are, are right there in their backyard. Uh, so students can go out there to actually understand the mechanics of the plane, et cetera. Um, starting in ninth grade, they get flight time. And so people that are, pers- the students that are pursuing the, the, the flying and pilot license pathway are actually getting flight hours at that early age, which is really cool to see. Um, and it, it's inspiring for the students that a lot of the uh, culture and organization and organizational values center on uh, acronym SOAR, which is meant to kind of also align to that that aviation focus. Yeah. And the, the, the vivid image I have in my mind is that they have a wall where they show all of these historic, historic Black aviation professionals, you know, Bessie Coleman, et cetera. And then you get to the last image and it's a mirror. And oh, you wow. To, you get to look into this mirror after seeing, you know, Lewis and Clark and all the other, you know, and then you kind of like look in the mirror. That's amazing. Um, and you see yourself. And so, um, it's a really powerful image, uh, and the way that, and the way that they're thinking about changing multi-generational pathways into education. Oh, I love this so much. And when you, um, I always get like CT is always a hot trigger issue for me because as a first generation college student, they're like, you should go into this program. And I think it was like, become like a, uh, some sort of assistant in like a restaurant. I don't know what that's called, (laughs) but basically like, it's like you get pigeonholed into a job that mm-hmm. to your point, and then you're like, okay, I'm in a kind of lower level job that I got some training for. So I really love this because to our, to our earlier conversation around like it, it was college for all, like that's it. And we're like really hardcore about it. Cause why? Because we want to give everybody opportunity for people like me to, you know, to not let's say like, oh no, we're going to close a lot of doors for you and say, you have to go to CTE. And mm-hmm. I love that we're evolving now to say like, Hey, everyone has the right or the choice to go to college and we're going to prepare you for that high expectation. Right. And Let's see what all the options are because I had an, another guest on who's starting a 
company around helping kids, teenagers find passion and purpose, Adam Carter, one of my friends from Summit Public Schools. And his point was like, if you really look at the return on investment on four-year college now, like there's a lot of questions to be asked. So let's create as many pathways as possible. And then what, how did you say it? Like pathway to success. I wanted to hear that definition because it was so good. It's like so concise and powerful. Yeah. So when you talk about pathways to success, we're talking specifically about approaches, models, and strategies that support students to explore their passions and interests, develop post-secondary goals, and then engage in high-quality working and learning experiences. Rejecting that career or college binary, it's meant to reject that either-or framing and then develop solutions that prepare all students for economic success and lifelong learning. Right. Which is, to your point, the aviation uh, you know, example you gave, or I know like Roots in um, New Orleans, I, I, he was in our cohort, Jonathan Johnson's another example. And then we have one here in Sacramento that's preparing kids for the trades. And, mm-hmm. but they're whole, you know, they're teaching kids to high expectations and giving them multiple options, but they do have like really great partnerships with, so when they graduate, they have a good job if they want to go in that direction. Right. And then it's like, there, there are multiple opportunities to grow in the, in the profession, not to be pigeonholed into one job based on your income or your race, right? So that's really cool. And I'm glad to hear those examples. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up. I wanted to ask you one last question that I always ask everybody, which is, is there anything, act like it was going to be some profound question. Is there anything that you missed or you wanted to share that you we didn't get to talk to today as we, as we wrap up? Yeah, I really just want to come back to... Um, this important moment that we're in in K-12 education where the last three years have been tremendously hard. Yes. And I have deep empathy for educators, frontline workers who are still every day doing the best they can to prepare the next generation. And I want to make sure that what doesn't get lost is the optimism that I have for where we are in this moment um, because of the innovation that we're seeing, because of the ways in which the hardship we've experienced has forced some folks to revisit and reconsider what's most important in the school environment and to see more and more people taking expanded definition of student success as core to how they think about what we're all working toward, um, but then operationalizing that with a dual attention to the needs of students and educators. And so um, I'm really proud of the portfolio and the, and the leaders in the portfolio, like the organization that you founded. Um, and I just want uh there to be more bright spot stories that we're, that we're able to share um, to inspire the field um, because we've learned a ton about how to be excellent um, and supportive in this moment. And I don't want to make sure that like that isn't getting lost amid the broader gloom and doom. Um, yes. What everyone's been through. That is, I'm so glad that you closed with that. And I absolutely agree with you. And which is why I started this podcast because I wanted to share as many examples for people as possible so they could see. So really my audience are education change makers, whether you're a parent or a student or an educator, what are some choices you have to like bring your vision or your dream through you? And I wanted to have you on because I wanted people to hear that, you know, like I said, we've talked to some micro schools people, we've talked to like some more out of the box, like really far away on the outside of the paradigm. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to have an example of, you know, someone like you that knows schools around the area or, you know, around and charter public more of like, without totally blowing up the paradigm, because that's something that I do talk about <laughs> in other episodes, but staying within the paradigm of what we know as school to be and mm-hmm. to to really create great options for kids. And so, and I love the reminder because I do feel like, 
you know, at my school, I still, I'm still an advisor there and I work with the board. And so the first thing that I heard in the first week was, oh my gosh, like this is, we can breathe now. Like this was the easiest start to school for three years. Like we weren't doing temperature checks and masks and 42 absences with teachers and kids because of COVID. And so I feel like people are starting to come back to the ability to see like, we can start to innovate again. We can start to be creative again because we're out of our survival mode. And so I'm really glad you brought that up. And I totally agree with you that it's a big moment. It's a big time. And it's great to have people like you that are being optimistic and doing the work and that you can see these great models and you can say like, oh, it's not possible. When I started Growth Public Schools and I said to people, traditional, just normal educators, because I had never worked in elementary and as K-8 and we started with little kids. So I was just asking everybody I could talk to. And they all said like, oh, kids can't do that. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so their first answer to my vision was kids can't do that. Number one. The second answer was your parents or your families will never want that. Right. And so I feel like you can say like, oh, that's interesting. Cause I can tell you 448 schools across the country where kids are doing it and parents and families love it. So that's really cool. So I'm glad that yeah. you named like really good examples for people. So I can put it in the show notes and we can start to create change one person at a time, one community at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say to yeah. you is that community has uh, now meant like sharing power with families. And there's been so many positive examples of that. And so I think that that's an important piece too. I talked about the shifts for students and educators, but there's been a yeah. shift in power engaging families too, that uh, hopefully will create a new generation of schools that are partnering with building with uh, their families. I love that vision. Love it so much. All right, Mia, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Changemaker EDU podcast. Every guest and listener is a valued part of this co-creation. We're honored that you listen and we hope that this helped you in some small or big way today. This is a community and a movement. And without you, it wouldn't be possible. If you want to learn more about me, go to davidkrichards.com. And as always, if you're so moved, please rate and review the podcast. And finally, our greatest compliment is when you share an episode with someone who you believe will benefit from the message. Sending you immense love and courage today. Thank you. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B E.